Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, the host of the Remnant Podcast, uh, brought to you by Dispatch Media and thedispatch.com. You should go to thedispatch.com to sign up for all of our newsletters and to see our web-exclusive content and to just generally become a better and happier person. Um, today's episode is brought to you by uh, Donors Trust, the tax-friendly way to simplify your charitable giving while preserving your values. And by our friends at DoorDash. Okay, so today we have in the studio a uh, longtime friend of mine. Um, uh, actually, I should say a longtime friend, a uh, fairly recent friend over the last few years, but longtime acquaintance of mine, um, and a figure of some controversy in some circles, which is so weird given what a nice, menschy kind of guy he is. Uh, we've got David Brooks. Welcome, David. It's good to be here. It's a dream of a lifetime. <laughs> I've never podcasted with you. I hope we enjoy it and have a smoke after. Uh, both of those <laughs> things can be arranged. Um, so, uh, David, for those of you who don't know, because you live in some sort of cave or other kind of domicile, is a columnist for the New York Times. Um, and before that, you were a senior editor. Was that your title of the Weekly I was Standard? I senior editor. I was neither senior nor edited. Uh, did you do no editing over there? No. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, it's like when I was editor-at-large. I, I, <laughs> I, all I did was be large. Um, and uh, so we're recording this literally on the day that the House actually sends over the articles of impeachment. And um, they've sworn in Chief Justice Roberts, and the senators have taken their new oath, which, as Gary Schmidt would argue, means it is now a different body than the normal Senate because they've sworn to do a different purpose. Um, a lot of people don't want to acknowledge that. Um, do you have any thoughts? Is it anticlimactic, climactic uh, on this momentous day? I started. I thought it started out anticlimactic and has only grown more anticlimactic <laughs> uh, over time. Uh, I've frankly, I've covered this a bit because the world needs us to cover such things. But I've paid almost minimal attention to this, um, in part uh, because it seemed like a foregone conclusion he was going to get acquitted for the Senate. Nothing has changed. In part because I'm not a real fan of scandal politics. Uh -huh. Even going back to Watergate, I think you defeat your opponents at the election not by trying to destroy them through scandal, which is a fantasy of each group. Yeah. Frankly, when I was at the Wall Street Journal editorial page, I was the op-ed editor. And under the direction of Robert Bartley, a man I greatly admired, I ran long whitewater essays that I did not understand. I remember those. <laughs> <laughs> and I've just not been a fan of that. And then finally, um, as we've shown... Uh, with this and other things, events don't drive history anymore. Sociology does, that you can have all sorts of revelations, uh, and Trump's people are still going to be Trump's people because he they're part of that group, and because the basic basic deal they made in voting for him was has not changed, which is they really dislike the other side, and he gives he makes them feel heard and understood. Yeah, um, but so like so, I'm sort of where you are on this. Um, uh, you know, punditry requires me to pay some more attention to it, and um, but I, I, I think that he did it. Yeah. You know, defining right. it gets you in a rabbit hole. But I think he pressured the Ukrainians to go after Biden. I don't think he cares about you know corruption in Ukraine generically. He cared about finding dirt. Um, but whether, but sort of for the reasons you suggest, impeaching him is a prudential question, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you could, one can argue that it's impeachable, but I think lots of things are impeachable. Should you impeach a president when you have term limits 10, minute, 10 months before an election? And to me, that's, I think there are reasonable people on both sides on that one. Yeah. 
I, I agree with that. I, I mean, I think he, he did it. I think we learned that the very first day with this phone call. Right. When he released the transcript, it was clear he did it. And then we've learned it again and again from sources high, like Fiona Hill, and sources low, like the Parnas. So we've kept learning that he did it. But we already knew that. As for the impeachment, I guess I've sort of migrated a little. My first instinct was the guy used hundreds of millions of dollars in foreign aid for his own political gain. Right. That seems pretty much like corruption to me. Yeah. Um, now I'm a little softening, like uh, thinking let's just have the election. Maybe it doesn't rise to the level of impeachment. I'm, I'm a little worried that we're going to have impeachment now every time the presidency and the House are in the opposite parties because there's always something that it goes wrong that the other side can persuade themselves is an impeachable offense. So, all right, so uh, we've checked that box. But it's a good way to segue to um, a question about sort of a 30,000-foot question, which is why is everything so screwed up? Why, you know, what, before we get into the real sociology stuff, which I do want to get into, why is the institution of Congress, the parties, and the presidency in a place where this seems so inevitable? Yeah, well, if you want my mega answer, uh, I would say, uh, I used to think the polarization, all the screw-up was in Washington, and the country was basically a bell curve nation. And I don't really believe any that anymore. I think the polarization is in the country. And not just the polarization. We haven't really grown ideologically more polarized. We've grown, as they say, effectively more polarized. We just hate each other more. Mm-hmm. And I do think that's – I'm a cultural determinist. I think culture generally shapes life and society. And I'd say in the 1960s, we um, cr- adopted a much more individualistic culture. And that separated families. Uh, it separated neighborhoods. It separated all sorts of institutions as people pursued their own individual self actualization, uh, and you leave people naked and alone. Uh, and when you leave people naked alone, they do a lot of things. One, they try to try opioids to dull their pain. They commit suicide more often. They drink more often. But one thing they do is they seek out ways to find community, and tribalism, tribal attitudes, seem like a way to form community because mm-hmm. you're bonding with people uh, through Rush Limbaugh or whatever, uh, or The View. Right. <laughs> and But tribalism seems like community, but it's the dark, evil twin of community. Uh, community is based on mutual love for something. Tribalism is based on mutual hatred for something. And so it's always us, them, friend, enemy, scarcity mindset. And so we've just dropped, in my view, adopted a bunch of um, very um, bad mental and moral habits. Isn't I mean, I agree with that um, to a large extent. Uh, but isn't part of the problem also that um, – how to put this – that – it's really easy to hate people from a distance, but it's hard to love them from a distance. <laughs> and so the part of the yeah. problem with the the the, the you know the, sort of the nisbet thing about the quest yeah. for community is innate, right. right? And when you can't find it close to home, you look for it wherever you can find it. And so the when you try to get it from Rush Limbaugh or from Rachel Maddow or whoever, um, that's you're looking very far away, right? And yeah. so. You can only find a real sense of community with actual human beings that you you see their faces and you right. hear their voices and you know um, the government can't make you a grilled cheese sandwich and a bowl of soup when you've had a terrible day right, right. only human beings can do right. that in proximity to each other and so like I, I hate going after technology but it seems to me that one of the big drivers I mean if you talk about culture technology drives culture a lot and. Mm-hmm. The, when these communities break down, they stop looking in the their in their localism, and they look far away. And the only way you can bind, bond with somebody two thousand miles away is finding a common hate. Does that make yeah. sense? I, I, I guess so. I mean, one of the things that left to mind is um, sociological segregation. It used to be if you lived in a small town in Tennessee, you had a bank manager there and the bank right. owner and the secretary, and maybe they were married to each other. Now the bank owner lives in Charlotte, and the only people in your town are the secretaries. Right. Uh, and then, as Will Wilkinson keeps pointing out for the Niskanen Center, cities like this one, Washington, D.C., New York, San Francisco, Paris, London, have become highly educated, meritocratic, uh, competitive hotspots mm-hmm. for the same sort of people. And so my f- frustration mostly with progressives is they've never met a Trump voter. You know, you, you, right. you, frankly, you meet journalists or colonists who literally never spent a lot of time with the Trump voters and they do a lot of generalizing about it, it's ethically wrong for a journalist to do that. And they always say, well, the Trump voters are motivated by race. And I always say, give me the proper name of one. 
Mm-hmm. We can all think of some, and we probably right. all know some. But I, ha- I can give you a lot of proper names of Trump voters who are not motivated by race at all. They're motivated by religious liberty or something else. Right. Uh, and so I, I think it's the residential segregation is a big part of it. Um, it you know, the technology, um, I do think we're not made for imperfect technology, imperfect communication. Mm-hmm. And technology is filled with lots of forms of imperfect communication. So when you're on social media, you're not really communicating out of your heart and soul. You're either Instagram, which is my life is better than yours. Right. Or Twitter, my opinions, your opinions are dumber than mine. Right. And so we're not just not biologically made for that kind of shallow communication. But that, that's, uh, I would say that's evidence to my point, which is that, remember the, the Covington High School kids thing? Mm-hmm. You know, that was something that someone 3,000 miles away was very, very, very mad at. And, or the thing that sparked the whole David French Sorbamari thing with the Drag Queen Story Hour. A hundred years ago, let's just postulate that someone did something really bad somewhere. (laughs) But but there was no immediacy to it. You don't see it as if they're like right next to you. And this is sort of a Megan McArdle point where that social media delivers all of the things that are bad about small town life and Mm -hmm. very few of the good things. We're all in each other's business. We're all mad at each other for living wrong, but we actually don't see each other as human beings because we just see them from a distance. So, yeah, this reminds me of Tom Wolfe's theory of the high school opposite. Uh-huh. That we all in high school knew who our opposite was. If you were the drama kid, you knew the popular jock was your yeah, opposite. Yeah, yeah. And so a lot of people, when they saw the kid from the high school on the steps, what was the name of the high school again? Covington. High. Covington. Yeah. They said, oh, I knew that kid. Yeah. And I hate that kid. And But they never actually have to meet the kid. With their high school opposite, there's probably going to be a time we're sitting next to each other in class. Right. So you could have a more complicated view. And frankly, a lot of Bernie Sanders supporters, they knew the B-school people or they knew the rich yeah. jerk, uh, f- investment banker. I hate those people. So they're going to turn that hatred into a political ideology. Uh, and so I do think um, it, it's a little, I, I guess I do agree with what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, I, so that, that raises an interesting uh, opportunity for some more rank punditry for a second. <laughs> I, I think one of the most shocking things in the last three, in, in this political cycle, is that on paper, if you looked at Elizabeth Warren's program and you looked at Bernie Sanders' program, you would think they're going for the same voters, right? Yeah. I mean, and she hugged him in a clinch for forever about Medicare yeah. for all and all of these various things. And it turned out that even though ideologically or programmatically they're almost mirror images of each other, culturally they have a very different resonance and yeah. that Bernie's voters are, I don't want to be pejorative about it, but the more downscale blue-collar socialists. Yeah, <laughs> and right. Elizabeth Warren's are the more the bobo socialists, right? right? Yeah. And um, it seems like they kind of hate each other, too, yeah, right, <laughs> which is right. kind of interesting to yeah. me. You know? And they all hate Buttigieg's people, who are the super upscale old That's people. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, but I'd say Bernie's are the younger. Um, I think age yeah, makes okay. a huge difference in this campaign. And, you know, I, had a, I was writing, a, I wrote a piece defending capitalism and why young people shouldn't be socialists. Yeah, it was a good piece. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And, and one kid came up to me, kid, somebody in their 20s, and said, you have to understand there are Bernie socialists who actually believe it. And then me, I'm just scared. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I, I want economic security. I don't really believe in all that stuff. Um, so I do think that we are voting much more less out of, even on the Bernie side, out of economic interests mm-hmm. and much more out of um, social identity. Right. And we fi- we're much better at defining our social identity. I don't think anybody voted for Hubert Humphrey because they liked his social identity. Right. It was more ideology, institution, stuff like that. Now we're making these fine demographic distinctions. Uh, and, you know, the thing that's happening, though, the oddity is Bernie, is that with some exceptions, which I'll get to in a minute, the Republicans are the working class party now, just right. as the Tories are the working class party. Right. And so he's the working class candidate without a working class. Yeah. Uh, the one exception to that, and I saw a poll today, which I, or a, a chart today on Twitter, which I, I think was based on Pew Research data, and it was how many Bernie Sanders in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin switched over and voted for Trump. Mm-hmm. And in each case, the number of Bernie people who voted for Trump was vastly larger than the margin Trump won the state by. Yeah. And so that suggests there are some genuinely class and culture war people out there who are happy with both, Yeah. the, the Bernie class war and the Trump culture war. I'm just, there's a book coming out uh, next week by Michael Lynn called The New Class War. Uh-huh. And I don't agree with it because I don't like, I don't think we're in a class war. But at least he gets populism right. Mm-hmm. And he says if you're going to have a successful populist movement, you have to be socially right and mm-hmm. economically left. Yeah. 
and to combine the culture war and the class war into one narrative, and he sort of for that. And I sort of, I think it's wrong. I, I just don't think the economics support it, but it's more interesting than the, the two different class and culture wars we got separated. Well, since you brought up Michael Lynn, he had, a, I guess it was an excerpt from the book in the Wall Street Journal last weekend, right. and he had this line in there which um, elicited a small amount of rage from me. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, so I have, you know, as you know, I, I, I kind of nerd out on the improper uh, use of various political nomenclature like neocon, you know, right. like I, too. and um, and he had this line in there about how the elites in these thriving mega, you know, uh, th- prosperous cities that the policies are a mix of social liberalism and economic libertarianism. And it seems to me that one of the big, I mean, I'm with you on most of the <laughs> cultural sociology stuff, right. but one of the sort of, you know, just public policy reasons why we have a lot of the problems we have today, it seems to me, is the way big cities are zoned. Cities used to be the place where poor right. people went yeah. to become not poor people. Right. And between uh, rent control and uh, the way we, we zone suburbs and we do we pay for schools, we're basically turning these cities... Like, when I was a kid, I was always shocked that the inner cities were the nicest parts of Paris and London and the right. bad <laughs> right. neighborhors were the suburbs, right? Yeah, it was I was shocked by that, too. Complete inversion, right? right. And... It's because of the way the, the haves locked out the have-nots from the places where the haves wanted to live, which is in the nice, big right. center part of the city. That's not that's going on in American cities, it seems to me, and that's not libertarian, right? That is really sort of nimbyism, I have mine, yeah. you know, screw you. Right. Um, and But there's this tenet, it, it was, to me, it's of a piece with this thing that Tucker Carl, our old, old friend Tucker Carlson is doing, a lot of these people yeah. are doing, is they don't want to attribute blame to real conservatives for any of our problems or to Trump for any of our problems. And so they find these different ideological labels to scapegoat. It's the neocons are getting us into the war, not the guy who actually ordered the attack, you know, (laughs) on Soleimani. Um, Or it's the libertarians who allegedly, according to Tucker, have run Washington, D.C. for 30 years, right? right? I mean, there's this scapegoating thing that's all over the place that kind of drives me crazy. Yeah, I have not noticed a lot of libertarianism in New York or D.C. (laughs) Um, I I do, the one part I agree with, I do think the individualism culture that we uh, have been living in for 60 years did have a left-wing variant, which was lifestyle individualism, and a a more right-wing Milton Friedman variant, which was economic individualism. Nonetheless, um, so you and I both grew up in New York, Mm -hmm. and if you start on 14th Street and 2nd Avenue, where I lived in a place called Stuyvesant Town, which is uh-huh. sort of a middle-class project, and walk a, ha- uh, a half mile south, you would find where my great-grandfather had his butcher shop, where my grandfather was sort of a struggling lawyer, where my mom and dad grew up, not fancy, and now where my son is in college. So it's like five generations all in one-third of a block. Yeah. And through most of that time, it was extremely middle-class, the Lower East Side. Sure. Uh, and if not working class. And, and now it's not. Yeah. And so why is that? Partly I do think it's the uh, the, the zoning restrictions, uh-huh. which is some bad faith, mm-hmm. and some people just like their neighborhood. Right. <laughs> and it's also just the, the mass of a global plutocracy, to mm-hmm. be honest. They're just a lot more rich people and right. a lot more r- rich Russians and Chinese who want apartments in New York. Right. And so both those things are causing the city we grew up in to be unrecognizable from when we grew up in it. Yeah, do you... Uh, do you like New York City as much when you walk around it now? Because I, I, I find it, for a lot of the reasons you specify, it feels like it's just lost a lot of its charm. Yeah, I, it has lost a lot of its charm. On the other hand, I sometimes think it's the best it's ever been. Like, uh-huh. I walk around the waterfront on the west side. If uh-huh. you walk up and down there, I think it's great. Times Square is way better than it used to be. Well, yeah. I mean, and I generally don't go north of 23rd Street. So, uh, and so I think Lower Manhattan is by far the best it's ever been. But, you know, like when we were growing up, I mean, you're a little older than me, but not that much older than me. Um, it was weird. Like, you follow pop culture, and so many of the chains, restaurant chains, yeah. clothing chains, really didn't have much of a purchase in New York City. Yeah, and I never ate at McDonald's until I was moved to the suburbs. Yeah, I mean, there, I mean, there, was, there was one in my neighborhood, it's sort of in my neighborhood, like on 71st and Broadway, and it was, and then there was a Burger King on 82nd, and... But they were really seen as poor substitutes to a good diner, you know. And one of the, as I'm the kind of conservative who thinks there's that every good thing has a downside and every bad thing has an upside. Um, one of the 
acceptable downsides of getting rid of all the crime and making mm-hmm. the city cleaner and safer is that you made it a much more hospitable environment for J. Crew and Forever 21 yeah. and all those places. Yeah. So all the mom and pop stuff just seems kind of missing and all the weird little boutiques. I mean, restaurants yeah. are still fantastic, yeah. but um, um, you don't feel like you're going to find used to be that you could find stuff that you couldn't find in any other city. And maybe yeah. you still can in Brooklyn and Queens, which are other countries to me. Right. But in Manhattan, that's kind of gone. Yeah, especially on the Upper East Side. So there's less Barney Greengrass, the Sturgeon King, and more yeah. the Gap. Yeah. And so that that part is true. I think the restaurants are A, way better. B, the diners are still basically there. There are just a lot of coffee shops around New York. And I don't romanticize the loss of Horn and Hard Arts, for example. When I was a kid, <laughs> my grandfather used to take me to this place where he, they had this big wall of little windows You'd put a quarter in the window and you get out a stale apple pie. Uh-huh. And so that was cool as a kid, I guess. But It looked cool I, in the Rock Hudson movies. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't romanticize the loss of that. And I do think if you go to Queens and Brooklyn, uh, you can find a lot of strange uh, yeah. little stores like that. Um, all right. So I, I, I'm, I, I'm, I want you to take a little bit of a personal inventory of your own regret. <laughs> <laughs> um, Fabulous. Uh, can we start with my resentments and uh, build up to my regrets? Uh, well, we, we did miss Festivus, but maybe next year we'll have a special episode. Um, no, uh, as you know, uh, when the Weekly Standard started, I was working in the AEI building and um, – technically not for AI anymore, but it was sort of a distinction without a difference. And um, I was an avid consumer of everything that you wrote and of the Weekly Standard in general. And um, even though a lot of you guys thought you were too cool for school, I have to say. and That, um, that is very true. Um, and That's a very unpleasant state to be in, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, but it is... It'll be interesting to see how intellectual historians, say 50 or 100 years from now, go back and they're trying to find the roots of all sorts of things in the uh, the last two decades in the 1990s. And it will probably surprise some people that you and Bill were way ahead of the curve on national greatness. <laughs> yeah, that's true. We were MAGA before MAGA was cool. Yeah. And so, and I remember being really into the fights between you and uh, Virginia Postrel and Jim Glassman, who are also friends. And... Uh, about whether national greatness was um, how it was a desperate move for the neocons to create a new military-industrial complex. Or where, <laughs> I can't even remember what the criticisms were, yeah. but they were very cross about it. Yeah. And um, and so I'm wondering, where do you come down now on all of that stuff, which I seem to remember had a lot more to do with ma- building really great buildings again yeah. and that kind of thing, which I'm fine with. Um, yeah. But what... Uh, where do you come down on the sort of turn towards nationalism? How do you fit it in your yeah. sociological theory? Uh, I, I still agree with all that national greatness stuff. We just had a different nationalism. Our diagnosis of the problem was, I think, absolutely correct, which was that free market fundamentalism, sort of congressional government can't do anything, let's just have the balanced budget amendment and term limits, that had no future. Mm-hmm. And it didn't really address the, prob- the growing problems of the moment, which even then were wage stagnation and equality and all sorts of things. And so we thought we got to move away from free market fundamentalism, if you want to put it that way. The nicer way to put it is Paul Ryan, 1990s, Empower America, mm-hmm. basically market. The conservatism is the market and shrinking the role of the state. Mm-hmm. And so we th- saw a bigger role of the state. Our definition of nationalism grew out of a different intellectual strain than where Trump does it. In fact, the exact opposite one. Yeah. We grew out of Alexander Hamilton, the Whig Party, Republican, uh, Republican Party under Abraham Lincoln, and Teddy Roosevelt. Mm -hmm. And so it was a nationalism that believed first in open borders, free trade, capitalism, and Truly open borders or just being a welcoming country? Welcoming country. Yeah, open borders is too much. Um, But just uh, that kind of dynamism Mm -hmm. and a belief that America has a very noble role to play in the world Mm -hmm. in spreading democracy and human rights. And so that was our tradition. And I think we were right saying we've got to build up our nationalism, and I still believe in that. I, I believe in nationalism. Trump comes along, and Pat Buchanan even were there was at that moment, mm-hmm. and Buchanan's sister worked at the, the Weekly Standard with us, uh, and when Buchanan won the New Hampshire primary, she came into the office the next day and said, don't worry, I'll protect you from the gulags. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, but he has a nationalism that Trump has now inherited, not based on Hamilton, but Jefferson, uh-huh. and then Andrew Jackson, and then the, the other strain. Right, And so it was an insight that we needed nationalism, 
we just got the wrong kind. And maybe we were out of touch, and we certainly were out of touch with the sorts of people who now support Trump who, who didn't want our kind of nationalism. Mm. So do you think Trump's kind of nationalism has legs? I mean, do you think it's going to survive Trump? Uh, there's a yeah. real thriving cottage industry of people trying to make the case right. that it will. I'm not sure they're going to succeed. Yeah. But. I'm not sure so either, but I, I saw recently that if you take the uh, 23 states that uh, William Jennings Bryan carried in 1896, <laughs> okay. 22 of them had turned Republican by 2000, and that's basically the Trump coalition. It's, uh, it's the South and the Midwest, mm-hmm. and it's always been pretty populist, mm-hmm. and Trump has tapped into that, and I think the Republican Party even leading up to Trump, starting with Buchanan and leading up to it, was a much more populist party. It's a working class party. It's it's much more isolationist, if you want to put it that way, or less internationalist, more hostile to immigration of all sorts. It's a very white party. Mm-hmm. So if you think, as I do, one of the biggest challenges of the moment is creating a mass multicultural democracy in which there's no majority group, um, I think my likely prediction for the party is that it's going to be a rump white party for a, a significant period of time. Yeah. I mean, I, again, to push, not, not pushing back, but I, I, I'm against monocausal explanations for yeah. things. So even though I agree with like <laughs> right. the vast bulk of your cultural and sociological <laughs> stuff, I hate putting all my eggs in any yeah. one basket. When you only have 850 words to write, you will believe in monocausal. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, um, you know, if, if, if I think it was Chris Starwald who pointed this out to me that basically you can predict which states are getting red and which states are getting blue by the net migration of people under the age of 25. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If young people are leaving them, they're turning red. Because right. old people vote Republican yeah. and um, and young people don't. And right. it's, um, but at the same time, I'm on this multicultural project, um, sort of taking, giving Lind more credit than I normally do on these kinds of things. Um, did you see this this poll a couple months ago where they asked American Hispanics whether they use the term Latin X? Oh, uh, yeah. And um, and uh, only two percent right. said they did, which means statistically it could have been zero. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and right. um, and uh, it seems to me that one of the things that the Democratic Party, which much to its credit, I want to be clear, they at least have closer to the right moral position in the big picture of things about saying this should be a country for everybody, that mm. black people and brown people and whatever are all equally American and you know talking about real America versus not real America is a bad idea. But they're working from an assumption that uh, your racial or ethnic identity is permanently entwined with your ideological identity. And that just doesn't seem obvious to me. Yeah, right. um, do you think that if you had sort of like a Trump, but not mm-hmm. Trump, that you could actually get that the, you could ironically get a Republican party that got the working class Hispanics and working class blacks in and because they, they don't buy a lot of the political correctness right. stuff. For sure. Um, I mean, they turn out to be way more moderate than the progressive whites. Right. And that's why they're with Biden in part. And in, it, and in, there are all these studies, even on racial matters, progressive whites are way more, they see more racism, they see more right. oppression than African Americans do. Uh, on average. And to me, one of the interesting things is you have this intersectionality on campus. And I f- see it in the media. I see it among my colleagues. I mm-hmm. mean, it's just a very prominent story to tell, which is white supremacy is everywhere. It's on Hasse Coates. And the basic reality is oppressed. 1619 Project. 1619. Uh-huh. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I had to get in there. That by <laughs> un- uncommented. <laughs> and, um, but what's interesting to me is that it has no political manifestation. Yeah. And if you had asked me in the Democratic primaries going in, won't there be a 1619 candidate without yeah. that? I would say, sure, that's a big thing on the left. And there hasn't been. Well, Beto tried. Beto right? tried, right. And, and look what happened to yeah, him. Yeah, no, and he went, it, things went poorly for him. Um, um, but no, I, I think that's, I mean, so it's like the, the, the factoid I keep focusing on, and I've talked about it a bunch of times, is that AOC is supposedly like the Joan of Arc of this idea, mm-hmm. right? She actually did not do all that well with Hispanics and blacks. Mm-hmm. I mean, she tied or, or you know, maybe beat by a couple points in a couple precincts uh, that guy Crowley in a very low turnout election. Right. She won because the barista socialist types, right? The yeah. the white uh, 
young liberals who see intersectionality everywhere were the one were her margin of victory. The Democrats kind of have a rump party problem with whites too, yeah, right? For sure. Um, and you know, Illinois, I mean, um, AOC is. Um, I think her national favorability is about 28. She's not a popular person. Right. I have to say, I've spent time with her twice, and I find her extremely cool. I find oh. her very likable person. And Republicans, I haven't met Ilhan Omar, but Republican House members tell me that they find her very, you know, very good personality, good huh. colleague. That's interesting. So that's in, that's interesting. Uh. Uh, but no, I do think um, that part of the electorate is in gross danger of of dragging the Democratic parties. They've certainly dragged it into places I can't follow. Yeah. And I don't think I'm alone. Um, so when you say you can't follow, uh, y- y- you have been on a journey of sorts, right? I mean, I'm not talking about religion and stuff, although that's very interesting to me. Um, but you don't really call yourself a conservative anymore, do you? I still believe in the Alexander Hamilton Whig Party Republican. Uh-huh. but And I called myself conservative for the longest time, and most New York Times readers think I'm a conservative. No conservatives think I'm a conservative. And so then I thought moderate. But that's such a stupid name. I, that, uh-huh. I'm, I, so I don't know what. I'm a, I, I have remained the same. I, I have remained what I was 30 years ago, which is essentially an Irving Crystal, Nathan Glazer, right. Daniel Patrick Moynihan, neoconservative. I mean, that I, and neoconservatives are people who sort of wi- were with the left until it took on the 1960s culture war and disdained bourgeois values. And I'm still basically an immigrant kid who um, thinks that the goal of, role of government should be to enhance social mobility. Yeah. And that's what the Whig Party was about. That's what Hamilton was about. Uh, and it's not where the Democratic Party has wandered into, but nor is it the Jacksonian Trumpism. So since you've wandered into the neocon thing, I'll just get it out there. Yeah. This, this is one of, you know, as, as, as I don't know if you know, but like Irving Crystal was sort of my dashboard saint. Yeah. And, um, um, and I used to hang out at the public interest with those guys and um, huge formative part of my life when I first worked at AEI was the public interest and all of that. And it has driven me crazy how neoconservative among supposedly smart, sophisticated people, uh, you know, columnists and writers for major newspapers, they just basically use neocon to mean either bagel snarfing warmonger <laughs> or just warmonger <laughs> right, right? Yeah. You know? and so like John Bolton is not even it's right. a so, so back up from John Bolton for a second my tell me if I'm wrong about this I mean my understanding of what it, what neoconservatism was was um, it was a rebellion against the great society stuff the public interest which predated the national interest the foreign policy neocon mag predated it by a decade or two and was only concerned with domestic policy. And, you know, William F. Buckley had this line where he says what the neocons brought to conservatism was sociology, right? The, the, prior to the neocons, it, conservatism was way too Aristotelian. And then uh, Irving and um, Matt Glazer and those guys, they brought in the, and uh, James Q. Wilson brought in the techniques of social science to prove that your grandmother was right about everything. Right, right. <laughs> um, um, does it frustrate? Do you think I'm right about this, or yeah. d- and and does it bother you that neoconservative has just come to mean, you know, people who like to drop bombs on people? <laughs> yeah. uh, first, I think the other thing they brought in, I agree with you about the Wilson, and they brought in sociology. They've been interested in poverty, in urban issues, and stuff like that, and race. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, Gertrude Himmelfarb, who just died, right? Um, I wrote it. I read through a bunch of her books after she died. And it turned out I had 10 of her books in my house. Like, <laughs> how many writers do I have 10 of their books? Yeah. And so it shows how important she was. And one of the things she and other neocons brought in was the emphasis on culture mm-hmm. and on the, what Lionel Trilling called the liberal imagination, how important it is to shape the imagination. And when I worked at the Wall Street Journal editorial page under Bartley, I think he sort of knew at a distance that culture was important. Mm-hmm. I don't think he ever quite got that. Yeah. Uh, he was very much an economic determinist. Now, as for the term... So it, for I guess it drove me crazy in the period between 2003 and 2008, uh-huh. and now I think it's a lost cause. Yeah, no, that, that and, may be true. But And so now I, I would go to some – I think the word is just lost. And that's why I don't know what, whether to call myself a conservative anymore right? because it, it seems like a lost cause, and I feel like I just say that word and people hear Trump, and then they don't want anything to do with me. Yeah. So do you think um, – that's, that's a good place to um, – actually talked to someplace that has sort of stuck to a lot of these values, and that's donors' trust. One of the great ways to live out the ideas that David Brooks writes about um, in his books and his columns, including his latest book, The Second Mountain, is through charitable giving. 
Private giving is a bedrock principle for America, and I know many Revenant listeners are engaged in giving in one way or another. If you are one of those givers, then look at Donors Trust. Donors Trust is the community foundation for those who care about free markets, limited government, and personal responsibility. A donor-advised fund at Donors Trust offers you a tool for simplifying your giving and maximizing your tax benefits. There are lots of donor-advised fund providers out there, but only Donors Trust shares your principles. The Donors Trust team will work with you to protect your charitable legacy, define your impact, and help you achieve your charitable goals. Last year, Donors Trust facilitated more than $200 million in charitable gifts to advance liberty from donors who give away a few hundred dollars a year and others who give much more. See how Donors Trust and a donor-advised fund could help you increase the impact of your philanthropy. Remnant listeners can get a free copy of Six Reasons to Use a Donor-Advised Fund by visiting donorstrust.org slash dingo. Go there to see how a fund with Donors Trust can help you with your giving. That's donorstrust.org slash dingo. I should also say that there's no obligation if you do this. You just go, you help the remnant, you help the dingo, um, and uh, you uh, get some information that you might find very useful. So please go to support us, to support them, to support our very way of life. We thank Donors Trust for their support. Okay, so um, so this is something that, because I'm so cool, I talk to lots of people about this very question of how much longer can you call yourself a conservative, you know, and um, some people have sin- sincerely believe there's no contradiction in being in the party of Trump and calling yourself a conservative. I've had arguments with a lot of them. Um, other people think that once Trump is gone, we'll just snap back to the mean and be conservatives again. I think that's going to be more difficult. But um, do you think that the word conservative is salvageable, um, given what we've gone through for the last three years and may go through for another four? Um, not in the short term, I guess. I mean, I, I think like Roger Scruton just died, and right. he's a real conservative. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, one of the things when I worked at, at Weymouth, at William F. Buckley's National Review, Buckley always made a clear distinction between conservative and Republican. Mm-hmm. Conservatives were people with ideas. Republicans were a party right. who would sell you out, basically. <laughs> and that distinction was lost. I began to notice it in the 90s on college campuses. Students who used to say, I'm conservative, they just said, I'm Republican. Yeah. And it, it meant the same thing. Yeah. And so that, that was a problem. That was a mistake because conservatism got trapped in uh, with, the, with the partisan affiliation. And now... Uh, I just think it's stuck with it. Mm-hmm. And na- now, I mean, within the group, within people who call themselves conservatives, I do think everybody recognizes there are a lot of different kinds. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, Yoram Hazoni's national conservatism, and there's there's more, uh, you know, what you guys are doing mm-hmm. is different. And there's Yuval. Yeah, Yuval is yeah. different. Um, but I think outside, uh, it's become uh, a term that causes people to stop listening. Mm-hmm. And then the other argument I have, and I have had this with folks at the Niskanen Center who are sort of former libertarians who've now really moved. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and which party, in which party is the debate more important? Is it more important to try to save the Republican Party or is it more important to try to save the Democratic Party? And since I'm a person who thinks the Democratic Party is likely to be about to become the Sun Party, the majority party, mm-hmm. I'd love for there to be a moderate wing to the Democratic Party. I sort of think that project is no more important right now, mm-hmm. but I could be persuaded. Yeah, that's that's a, that's a difficult project too, right? Yeah, I right, mean, for sure. Yeah, because no, I recently wrote about the Sun and Moon Party thing, and I linked to a col- that column that you did about five years ago or seven years ago on all of that, and about how we're stuck with two Moon parties, which I think right. is basically right. Yeah. Um, and um, at the same time, that. Feel like and Jerry Taylor makes this point. He's the head of the Niskanen Center. Um, that feels unsustainable to me. Um, and you know, people. I'm sure you get this all the time. What about a third party? What about right. a third party? And then you got to quote Richard Hofstetter about third parties are like bees; they sting and then they die and <laughs> blah 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 blah. Right. But um, um, given the levels of negative partisanship that we've got where mm-hmm. mi- millions and millions of people call themselves Democrats just because they hate Republicans and vice versa. It seems to me that 
as the co- as the FDR white working class coalition moves into the Republican Party, that changes the the coalitional stability of both parties. Mm-hmm. And you could see one implode. I don't know which. I honestly right. don't know which one. Right. And then if one party died, it may still call itself the Democratic Party, but. If one party dies, the other party kind of loses its reason to live because it, right. the only reason it exists is to yeah, hate the other right. party, right? right. So it, it feels to me like in 10 years you could see maybe still call them Democrat and Republican parties, but yeah. the, the coalitions that make them up would look very, very different. Yeah, and I, I don't see why s- sort of suburban office workers are Democrats. Right. Because they, they're sort of believe in free enterprise. Um, they're socially and moderate uh, you know what what's what is that part what does elizabeth warren bernie Juan sanders have for them right they're working at it at rockville maryland or loudon county virginia or something like that like uh so i could see that i i, I mean i could tell a good news story about the republican party which is that trump loses mm-hmm. and then immediately everybody who supports him said i always hated that guy <laughs> <laughs> and which I, is possible yeah right i, yeah. I they've been carrying all this water for him all this time and once that's no longer necessary, I don't think they're going to say, oh, I really miss that Donald Trump guy. Yeah. They're going to look immediately. And then you have pretty good rising group of senators, say, uh, you know, the Josh Hawleys of the world and Ben Sasses and uh, Tim Scott and, you know, a bunch of other. They're pretty good senators. And Marco Rubio, I think, is a very serious guy. And they create a party which looks a little Trumpish, mm-hmm. uh, especially on immigration and other issues. But. It's much less free marketeer, and you, we saw uh, Hawley just had a spat with George Will on this subject, and mm-hmm. I have some sympathy with the Hawley view. Um, and then, so it becomes a, a genuine working-class party that does a lot to, to help struggling workers mm-hmm. and rural places that are struggling, and actually does infrastructure programs and does a lot of the stuff those places need. Uh, and that, uh, you could see that becoming a majority party. I just think the racial subject is the big problem. Mm-hmm. You 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 just got to get over that. Yeah. And if you don't do that, it's it's not only that you're going to lose minority votes, but a lot of respectable people just going to say, I, I can't be for that. I'm sorry. Well, and that's that's a big chunk of the answer to your own question from before about why are these suburban office workers Democrats? Yeah, right. It's because they're embarrassed to say they're you know right. in the party of Trump and yeah. the people who and, and and what's his name from Iowa? Um, oh, the horrible guy. Stephen um, King. Stephen King, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's like right. Stephen King chases away probably three white voters <laughs> for every one he right. gets, you right. know. Right. Um, um, so what's your good news story about the Democrats then? Uh, the Democrats is that they're actually, they haven't gone crazy. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, I, you know, they nominate Joe Biden or Steve Buttigieg. Uh, and I, I, I don't see them sort of reverting to Obamaism because I don't think even if you took the Obama people who are in the administration – I think they've all shifted pretty seriously left. Mm-hmm. I don't think there are any moderate progressive economists anymore. Yeah, I think they've all gone um, much more left. But that, but Biden still rallies around the old group, and they become the party of American internationalism. Let's rebuild our alliances. Let's do things. Uh, some things I think are needed. I think. I mean, the big fight in the, the Democratic Party is how bad is capitalism screwed up? Mm-hmm. Uh, should we use sort of Pell Grants and early childhood education and earning income tax credit to give struggling people a chance to succeed and become capitalists, which I think is that's my policy. Or is it, um, no, capitalism screwed up. We need to get involved in capitalist firms, make all the decisions for them, maybe nationalize a few, uh, maybe break up a few, and really muck up with the world of, of capitalism. And that column I wrote about capitalism, I went up to debate with Arthur Brooks on capitalism versus socialism, basically. Brooks won. Brooks right. won. Well, barely. We went, the, they do no, these I mean, votes. In the, either way, either Brooks way, won. Well, we were on the same side. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I thought you were debating him. No, no. Uh, and in the beginning of the debate, they asked the 4,000 people in the audience, are you for capitalism or do you need, does it need socialism to replace it? 45% of people in Toronto, upscale, affluent Torontoans, uh-huh. said capitalism is broken, needs to be replaced. And after, because we're just brilliant debaters, uh, we got it down to 43% of the <laughs> <laughs> and um, so that, like, capitalism has a big problem. Okay, so this raises, uh, I have a couple questions where I'm, I'm going to unfairly put you in the position that you don't belong in. Um, uh, you, when you were explaining how your, uh, what, national, what your national greatness is about and what, you know, the kind of capitalist that you are and all the rest, the formulation that you used was, you know, uh, sort of, 
defining yourself against unfettered libertarian market capitalism and all the rest. That's another one of these phrases, like Marco Rubio and his speech about yeah. common good capitalism, right, whatever right. that was, um, talked about unfettered capitalism. Um, everywhere I look, I have a hard time finding <laughs> unfettered capitalism. You know, I mean, it's, 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 it's to me, fair. it's a lot like the Enron thing, right? I mean, yeah. everyone says, "Oh, that's what you get from unfettered capitalism." Yeah. And then you act, or the financial crisis, you look at what actually caused it. Capital, sure, capitalism played a part, but. There were all sorts of distorting regulations. Um, there was all sorts of bad public policy that uh, didn't allow markets to work the way they're supposed to work. And every time you get a problem from that <coughs> approach to public policy, people don't say, oh, it was bad public policy. It was that there wasn't enough public policy to restrain capitalism. Where where, where was this – I mean – yeah. Except for 1880, when did we have this unfettered capitalism that people keep talking about? Yeah, no, and that, that's true. I mean, people talk about our capitalist healthcare industry. Like, what? Do we have a healthcare industry in which people don't pay their own bills, and that's somehow capitalism? Um, uh, so I do agree with that. I think the problem with the Republican Party, when I say um, it was, it was not that it was for capitalism. I'm for capitalism. It's mm -hmm. created wealth generation. It's produced the greatest reduction in poverty, greatest reduction in global inequality in human history. Um, what the problem with the Republican Party, I should have been more specific, it was anti-government. Mm -hmm. You had this vast coalition. The only thing that they could agree on, as Grover Norquist said, was we all hate government together. Mm -hmm. And so any form of government action was illegitimate. And so when Bush wanted to do something for New Orleans after Katrina, the House crushed it. Right. And they crushed a lot of things. And when, frankly, in, Tony, in Great Britain, when David Cameron wanted to do a big society, which would rebuild social capital, he got crushed by his own party. Mm -hmm. So to me, it was n the problem was not that the party was too uh, pro-capitalist. It was uh, too anti-state. Mm -hmm. And I do think the Niskanen Center makes this point, and I think this is an absolutely legitimate point, has changed my thinking a fair bit. We spent a lot of our youth having this argument, either you're for the market or you're for the state. Mm -hmm. But if you look at Scandinavia, they have extremely free markets and extremely big states. Yeah, yeah. And they need the market to pay for the state uh, and their welfare policies. And so maybe that debate was sort of wrong mm -hmm. and that you can be for both those things, but you definitely need a free market to pay for policies to help the people who need it. Yeah, and that sort of reminds me of a distinction that Irving Kristol used to make, which is that there are two kinds of conservatives. There are the conservatives who are anti-left and there are conservatives who are anti-state. And yeah. Irving was like, I'm anti-left, yeah. but I'm not anti-state. Right. And I, it's a useful, I think it's a useful sort of I don't know, heuristic, the right word, you know, a useful right. way to think about some public policy questions. Are you against this? because you don't want the government doing, say, public schools? Right. Or are you against it because you don't want the left controlling public right. schools? You can right. have public schools without the left controlling them. They're different fights, different arguments right. you know, yeah. to bring to bear. And, and you can have a, a strong state without a nanny state. And, right. and it gets into trouble when it turns into state dirigism, where the state is actually trying to run things. But the state can't supply care to people. It can supply um, services. So and you're the first Public intellectual, I have heard say out loud the word de regime. De re <laughs> I, that's why I don't say it. I can't. The regime is. I never been able to say it. Um, I, I took French one hundred and one like eight times. Okay, well, there you go. Um, all right. So but th one last uh, unfair question on this point. Um, I've had a bunch of people on the podcast and in private conversations who subscribe to similar sort of views as as you're laying them out. And one of the problems I have is that. Um, Part of the conservative critique of great society liberalism or statism or whatever you want to call it was always what Friedrich Hayek called the knowledge problem, right? That, that planners are a problem because not because they're left-wing, but because planning is inherently fraught and that policymakers in Washington are never going to have the kind of access to the kind of information they need to get everything right, which is why markets work better than planned economies, right? It now feels like Josh Hawley and Marco Rubio and, and a lot of people um, seem to think that that critique was still valid for everything that Bernie Sanders wants to do, <laughs> right. but because they're the good guys and they know what America needs, that their planning won't run into the same yeah. problems. And I'm, right. I'm skeptical. You know, it's an, it is a neoconservative thing to be skeptical about big state efforts. It doesn't mean you have to be against them philosophically, but you have to be skeptical of them. 
and that there are laws of unintended consequences. Right. How do you deal with the, the sort of Hayekian problem for right-wing or right. conservative planning that, you know, this is the same problem for yeah. left-wing planning? So this is like the one core belief I've had through my entire life, which was Burkean epistemological modesty, mm -hmm. that the world's complicated, we really can't plan it. Uh-huh. And so I, I definitely subscribe to that. Uh, I, do, I, I would recommend an, a great essay by Michael Oakeshott called On Rationalism, mm -hmm. which is about the flaws of technocratic planning. Uh, and so I, that's like the core of the, my whole belief system. Now, so that, does, that means you do not want government to be picking winners and losers. You mm -hmm. don't want government to be saying, oh, this industry is going to thrive and that industry is going to fail. You don't want government to say, we're going to solve the, glean, uh, the global climate change through we're going to control the economy and through right. the Green New Deal. But you probably do want a, a carbon tax and let the market figure it out. You probably do want to create a room for, voucher, for uh, charter schools so mm -hmm. they can figure it out. You probably do want a, a localized power, mm -hmm. and so different communities can figure it out according to their own values. Uh, you probably do, like Alexander Hamilton, uh, he, had, he wanted to create a, a dynamic economy, so he created credit markets. Mm. And you probably do want to have free financial markets so capital can go where it should go. Uh, and But on the other hand, what we're seeing is the inherited transmission of wealth mm -hmm. and education. And if you're born into a family making $96,000 a year, your odds of getting through college are one in two. And if you're born in a family making 36, it's one in 17. Mm -hmm. So that's not fair. That's not capitalism. Mm -hmm. And so government needs to do things to sort of equalize that. But it's, it's not going to do it by controlling everybody's life. Basically. Fair answer. It's a fair answer. Um, but, you know, one of the things that the market is actually fantastic about is um, expanding the kind of choices that we have in life. And that's why we like DoorDash. Are you crushing it at work, laser-focused on beating that boss level? That doesn't mean you shouldn't eat. DoorDash can help you get your next meal from your favorite restaurants in minutes. DoorDash connects you to your favorite restaurants in your city. Ordering is easy. Open the DoorDash app, choose what you want to eat, and your food will be delivered to you wherever you are. Not only is your favorite pizza joint already on DoorDash, but there are over 340,000 restaurants in 3,300 cities, so you might find a new favorite, too. With door-to-door -door delivery in all 50 states and Canada, order from your local go-tos or choose from your favorite national restaurants like Chipotle, Wendy's, Chick-fil-A, and the Cheesecake Factory. Don't worry about dinner. Let dinner come to you with DoorDash. Right now, our listeners can get $5 off their first order of $15 or more when they download the DoorDash app and enter promo code REMNANT. That's not Dingo. It's REMNANT. Dingo for Donors Trust, REMNANT for DoorDash. That's $5 off your first order when you download the DoorDash app from the App Store and enter promo code REMNANT. Don't forget, promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, for $5 off your first order from DoorDash. We thank DoorDash for their support. Okay, all right, so in the little time we have left, I don't want to keep you too long, um, but in my ample show prep, as you can see, I've got yeah. back issues charts. with weekly standard charts <laughs> and you know various diagrams of your uh, x-ray of your skull. Um, uh I finished this morning this other podcast that I do with John Podoritz and Rob Long. Right. And in the last bits, I was like, hey, guys, I got to go. I got to go do a podcast with, with David Brooks. What should I ask him about? And John <laughs> said. <laughs> he actually knows me. Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, first of all, you are free to tell any stories about John Podoritz you want. That is, we will like, go another hour if you have embarrassing stories about John Podoritz. But um, uh, he said, all right, I'm just going to give you two words. And I won't tell you what it's about. You just have to ask him about it. And so if it really is something terrible, we'll cut it out <laughs> okay. of this podcast. Okay. Yeah. But he said, ask Brooks about the kosher killer. <laughs> <laughs> so John and I were at college together at the University of Chicago. Uh -huh. um, and we didn't know each other because it was the University of Chicago. Uh -huh. And we were a year apart. Um, my favorite saying about Chicago is it's uh, a, a Baptist school where atheist professors teach Jewish students St. Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> and and um, he was... Uh, he had a big musical comedy thing he did, and I mm -hmm. was writing for the school paper. When I was a freshman, uh, I had a roommate named Les Firestein who came from uh, collegiate school in uh -huh. New York City. And uh, he was Bill a big... Bill Crystal's alma mater. Oh, uh, I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, yeah. A big athletic guy. And we decided we would enter him in the Golden Gloves of Chicago. 
boxing tournament. Uh-huh. But we decided we'd train the University of Chicago way. We wouldn't actually learn to box. We'd read books about boxing. <laughs> <laughs> and so we entered him in, and it was Chicago. So there's, in the locker rooms, there are these big Polish guys, uh-huh. big African-American guys. And Les, who was big, like 6'2", 190, uh-huh. and fit, yeah. but um, had never boxed in his uh-huh. life. And so we would dress up in suits, and I was the manager, and I carried a bucket full of towels to throw in the ring as soon as the fight starts. <laughs> and But we kept getting buys through the tournament because other fighters would get sick or get injured. <laughs> and so suddenly we're in the semifinals. Oh, no. <laughs> and his girlfriend, Les's girlfriend, is calling the Chicago Tribune. You can't let him fight. He'll get killed. <laughs> and so the big story in the Chicago Tribune about us and Les's nickname, his fighting name, was the Kosher Killer. Ah, okay. And so <laughs> we get to the semifinals. He's in against a phenomenally good boxer. <laughs> and he runs out into the middle of the ring when the bell rings with his head down and his arms flailing wildly. <laughs> Which is bo- the, the, the Jewish school of kung fu. Fighting, <laughs> yeah. It's Jewish martial arts right there. <laughs> and the other fighter had never seen anything like this. Uh-huh. And so he... Stunned, he backs up into his own corner. <laughs> and Les has his head against his chest, wildly flinging his arms, not landing any punches. Uh-huh. And 92 seconds into the fight, the other fighter realizes, well, one uppercut ends this. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what happened. <laughs> um, was, he har- was he horribly injured? He was not horribly oh, injured. Okay. We all got a laugh, and we got to be in the Chicago Tribune. And now he's the Sh- Chicago Land's premier accountant or something? <laughs> <laughs> no, he, he transferred out to Stanford, and then he went to TV, I think. Oh, okay. All right. Um well, with with that, uh, well, do you have uh, any embarrassing stories about John Bedores <laughs> you'd like to share? Anything you want me to ask him the next time I'm, I'm doing a podcast with him? Uh, so John and I knew, met each other shortly thereafter at the Washington Times. Uh, the main thing I remember um, is he had a house with Robert Kagan uh-huh. on Capitol Hill when they were in 20s. And they would throw these big house parties. Uh-huh. And everybody I now know was there. <laughs> like... <laughs> Jacob Weisberg from Slate would go, uh-huh. and uh, Nicholas Everstadt from American Enterprise, uh, Malcolm Gladwell would go. And it's weird how you grow up in a circle. And we were dance, and we mostly danced to the talking heads. And I think John, or maybe it was the girlfriend of one, somebody else who there, said that burning down the house was the neoconservative anthem. <laughs> I've never really gotten that. But, um, and did, um, so Pod cut a rug? Pod definitely. Oh, he was a very good dancer. He was born to play um, Fiddler on the Roof. That's what he should have been doing with his life. Wow. I, it's, it's an image. Did he have the giant Jufro at the time, or uh, was, was he already losing it by then? He was already losing it by then. I had a bit of a Jufro, believe uh-huh. it or not, back then. Okay. All right. Well, with that image, uh, <laughs> David Brooks of the New York Times and uh, author of many f- wonderful books, uh, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, it's a pleasure. Okay, so David Brooks has left the building. Um as I sort of intimated at the top of the show, I always think it's funny how much rage David Brooks induces in people, um, whether it's right-wingers or left-wingers. There's just something about um, his lack of ideological zeal. Um, or his, I think for the conservatives, it's his lack of ideological zeal um, and willingness to countenance you know, uh, disparate, disparate ideas and all that kind of stuff. And for... A lot of left-wingers, particularly New York Times readers, it's the way he moderately defends things that the left thinks only ideological zealots believe, and it just drives them crazy. Um, but I think David's great, and um, I have my disagreements with him, but um, um, I think he's one of the few really, really actually interesting columnists out there who you don't know where he's going to come down on things, and I'm delighted to have him on. Uh, some light housekeeping uh, we are going to record the exit is- interview with Jack Butler soon. Um, I'm both nervous and excited about it, and I'm, I'm very happy for uh, Jack to go and start his uh, next chapter at National Review. Um, and, uh, oh, something I've learned recently, if you are at home making dinner, cooking meth, doesn't really matter, and you have one of those home assistant things, whether it's Google Home or Alexa, uh, all you need to say is play The Remnant with Jonah Goldberg, and it will start playing The Remnant with Jonah Goldberg, which is kind of cool. So, you know, we're always looking to find new ways to get uh, downloads into every nook and cranny of your life, and this is another one, and um, it'd be good for us and good for you. I don't know if it's good for you, but uh, it's something at least interesting to know. And also, please check out all of our um, other podcasts. We're going to set up a super feed um, 
channel soon that will have you can still subscribe solely to the remnant which you know a lot of decent and wise people do but if you want to get all of our stuff including the latest uh, flagship podcast uh, the dispatch podcast um, or advisory opinions with David French and and uh, Sarah Isger uh, we're gonna set up a super feed channel so that you can you'll never miss anything that we put out um, and also I uh, just want to put it out there. If anybody wants to advertise on any or all of our podcasts or do a sponsorship across the board, uh, we would love to hear from you. Uh, you can just send an email to me um, or to the, the remnantpod at gmail.com or to, uh, you know, to Caleb at The Dispatch. Let him deal with all of the uh, uh, weird overtures. He's the producer of our podcasts. Um, anyway, until next time. Uh, uh, this is Jonah Goldberg. Bye-bye. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.